You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. In April of 2019, I was in San Marcos, Texas for an academic conference called Of Gods and Monsters. As with many conferences, some of the most interesting interactions took place between sessions and over meals and drinks. I need to thank Joe Laycock and Natasha Mickles for the work they did to organize this event. You'll be hearing more about this conference in the future because I think several new episodes are going to come out of it. Over lunch one day, I was discussing the problem of language around monsters with some of the attendees. There is, it seems, a problem where Western English speakers like to slap their own labels on other cultures' monsters. As an example, I mentioned dragons. How could the word dragon really apply to all the different kinds of dragons in Europe, Asia, and the Middle East? Some have wings, and some have multiple heads, and some are seen as evil, and some are seen as good. How could they all be the same creature? How could they all deserve the moniker of dragon? So, Eric Mortensen was walking by, and he overheard my lament, and he politely leaned into our conversation, and he laid down the gospel of dragons in about three minutes in more depth than I'd ever heard before. So I immediately asked him to come visit us on Monster Talk and to share his knowledge with us. And what follows is a wide-ranging interview that covers dragons, but also dips into Tibetan fairy lore and the Yeti. And we'll definitely be having Eric back with us to discuss those topics as well. But for today, today we're talking dragons. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. <laughs> I met Eric at the Gods and Monsters conference, uh, mm-hmm. and he gave this really fascinating talk on Yeti. And so I was already kind of contemplating having him on to talk about Yeti with us a little bit, because mm-hmm. from a cryptozoology perspective, Eric, we mostly hear about people seeing them. Uh, but uh, almost always it's Westerners going to look for them, not so much uh, native lore. Do you want to introduce yourself uh, before we get started? Sure, I'm happy to. So my name's Eric Mortensen, and I am 
an associate professor of religious studies at Guilford College in North Carolina, where I teach several different <clears throat> sort of angles of religious studies. I teach Asian religions in general, East Asian religions mostly. So I mostly teach about Buddhism, um, but I also have courses on such things as Taoism and shamanism. And I also teach comparative religious theory. So I teach relatively phenomenological courses on things like dreams and religion, animals and religion, um, the problem of evil and monsters and religion and things like this as well. I also do a lot of coursework team taught with some science professors on concepts of the relationship between religion, magic, and science. Oh, wow. Well, so I grew up in Massachusetts. Uh, I've lived a lot of my life in China, Tibet, India, and um, I've been in North Carolina for about 15 years teaching college. Yeah, Eric. Uh, so we're interested to find out a bit more about how you got into Tibetan religious studies in the first place. It's a good question. Um, <laughs> well, interesting and probably, you know, nicely related to one of the things we'll be talking about today. When I was an undergraduate college student at Carleton College, I had this magical professor. His name was Qiguang Zhao, Zhao Qiguang. And he wrote a wonderful book called A Study of Dragons, East and West. And it's nothing that he ever actually, the book was not something he ever taught me in a class, but when I learned that he had written this book and I read this book, it opened me to the idea that one can do such things. One can academically study things that one thinks are cool. <laughs> and that there are good methodologies to this. There are schools of thought and folkloristics and all kinds of things like this, and that we can delve deeper and deeper and deeper. Meanwhile, I had been studying Chinese with him, and I went and studied abroad in China and fell in love with China. And it was through my um, time in China that I learned more about Tibet. I eventually came back to the U.S. and started learning and studying more about Tibet and then went to do basically a Ph.D. in Tibetan and Himalayan religions inside of the Department of um, Inner Asian and Altaic Studies at Harvard University. So I was basically working on sort of Sanskrit, Mongolian, Tibetan, Chinese um, mythology, folklore, history, linguistics, anthropology. It was very much an area studies, interdisciplinary kind of program. And it enabled me to go and spend a lot more time in um, Tibet. So my research topics shifted from Tibetan children children's games played with bones to the, the language of ravens and raven augury and raven divination manuscripts, which is what I wrote my dissertation on. And now recently I've been studying folklore um, surrounding monsters and monster stories and invisible villages and things like this in southeastern Tibet. So it's been a long path. I mean, I'm interested in a lot more things than that, but those are the sort of my, sort of my research path in a certain kind of way. Most of my days I find myself basically though being a classroom teacher <laughs> more than a researcher and engaging with college students about issues of how we think, how we understand what religion might be, how we understand the relationship between curiosity and imagination and magic and intellectual rigor. These kinds of things. That's what I do with my time. That's a good problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of fun too. <laughs> Yeah, isn't it fun when you get to find a way to yeah uh, intellectually exercise your curiosity in a another way? I mean, to consume media, it. right? You get paid for it is even better. I, yeah, it's quite a yes, yeah. yeah, it really is. I, I something like the fact that we're having this discussion right now makes me feel like the luckiest guy in the world. I, I just, 
you know, so I just, I, I really love talking weird. about monsters. I am, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't even, yeah, Eric got to see a movie I got to pick. So we'll, we'll maybe we'll talk about oh, that at the end. Okay, well, then he, he knows. <laughs> so I'm sort of someone who fluctuates between being a, a researcher, teacher, and someone who does a lot of field work. I spend a lot of time deep in the mountains talking to old bullshit artists. Wait, I'm not allowed to swear. I no, no, it's okay. You can we're, swear. We're, oh, yeah, you can our swear. Patreon supporters love it. Yeah, that's true. So, yes, I spend a lot of time interviewing elderly bullshit artists in rural villages in southeastern Tibet. And it's hard, but it's fun. We have oh, a good time. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, he, Eric's presentation was just amazing at the of Gods and Monsters conference. So I'm sure. Yeah. We, so so part of what happened, let me just sort of give this version real lightly. I, I had sat down at a table for lunch and uh, was talking to a couple of students who were attending the conference. And I was sort of I was kvetching, if that's the right way to say that. Uh, I was complaining because one of the problems I see after 10 years of doing this show is that there's a linguistics problem in monsters, uh, specifically around the fact that uh, as an English speaker, we have terms we use that we just sort of blanket slap onto any kind of monster around the globe. And the one that got us started was vampires. And and I was saying, you know, I like vampires, but I like the scary Nosferatu kind. And uh, they were discussing the sort of Twilight Sparkly kind. And we were talking about the, you know, classic <laughs> Dracula. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was saying, well, you know, in Asia, there's, you know, these vampires that are just the head just leaves the corpse and trailing entrails goes around and attacks people and sucks mm -hmm. their life force out. And so we call all these things vampires, but that's not really right. I mean, that's, you know, well, the Varkulos. Mm -hmm. Anyway, they, these are all different. And I said, well, take dragons. Uh, you know, dragons can't possibly be one thing because if you look in Asia, it's one thing. And then Eric just walked by, pardoned uh, for the interruption, and then leaned in and gave us the gospel of dragons in about three minutes. It just blew me away. How <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> the gospel of dragons. Nice. So I thought, wow, it, just for that part, we have to have you on Monster Talk. So, Eric, uh, we're gathered here today to discuss the gospel of dragons. Would you mind leading the liturgy? <laughs> Happily, it's more fun than ex-sanguinators. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, dragons. Dragons are actually many things. <laughs> and there is no unanimity of scholarly thought about the origin of dragons. There's quite the debate afoot. Because it is one of these great examples of an issue that seems as though there are multiple the multiplicity of places of origin of dragon mythos, basically, of dragon story, um, the concept of dragon, and that there has been a great deal of syncretism and cross-pollination of these stories, and some of the dragons that we may think of in our own imaginations when we imagine dragons today, or if you actually meet a dragon today, is that it is something that has morphed and changed and blended over the centuries. So, the debate is whether or not there is a single proto-origin story um, or source for the concept of dragons or a multiplicity of them. I'm in the school that says there's a multiplicity of them. And that's pretty rare in what we might think of as um, proto-mythology or old religious comparative religious studies. Usually things do diffuse and move and change. And as, again, to, to again quote Wendy Doniger, she says, there's no Galapagos Islands for myth. Right. And she's right. 
basically, usually when we see similar patterns here, we're seeing diffusionary patterns. We're seeing influence um, over the centuries. You know, and Homo sapiens haven't been been walking around for that long. And particularly if you're looking in Asia or you're looking in Native North America, Homo sapiens out of Africa, about 100,000 years, right? We have senses of through comparative folkloristics and um, other patterns of comparison, we have a sense of what some Homo sapiens probably believed 45,000 years ago. We're getting better at it. So it's pretty rare to find these things popping up independently. So the dragon story goes something like this. There's probably a Chinese origin of dragons. And there is a Mesopotamian origin of dragons. And add to this the notion of something like a serpent spirit in South Asia, the Nagas concept, and the spread of Buddhism 2,000 years ago along the Silk Roads. And you end up getting these weird blends of dragon serpent kind of concepts you add this to abrahamic religion later on add to it also influences from um greek and egyptian mythos and you end up with what we think of as the european dragon in the high middle ages with four legs and wings and virgin stealing and fire breathing stuff which is very far afield from its origins in mesopotamia and china and india are you with me yes Absolutely. Okay. Although, can we I? Can, yeah. Can we? Um, can we redefine syncretism? We've uh, we, when Joe Laycock was on, he defined it, and we talked about hybridization and, and and syncretism. But could you just sort of go over that again? Because we never, we are always picking up new listeners, and they may not have a good idea. For I'm that using word. the term really broadly to mean when things blend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, there's lots of classic examples that we may think of closer to home in the states. Um, think about like the role of voodoo or something maybe with Catholicism a, and yeah i was thinking more like how something like a christmas tree i mean you're not going to find the christmas tree in the bible right so when you start moving the the christ story to the winter solstice and the idea of death and rebirth and renewal and things like this and it matches with the cultural traditions of people who were celebrating in northern realms things like um keeping a light on all night long on the longest night of the year. Um, And this notion of decorating with boughs of pine trees and things like this, you you end up with a blending, a syncretism of sorts of um, religious worldviews, of religious traditions and stories. So that um, when religions spread and cultural ideas, whatever religion might be, whenever these stories and rituals spread, they tend to take on local manifestations in ways that are involved with issues of power and, and hegemony and things like this. And sometimes there's more dominant traditions than others. But when Buddhism spreads, for example, into China, it's going to mix with local religious traditions and Taoism and things like this. When it spreads to Japan, it's going to mix with Shinto. And you're going to get the Shinto kami being understood as bodhisattvas from Buddhism and things like this. These are examples of syncretism. So it has to do with basically when there's contact between these worldviews um, and the re- the results are going to be something that doesn't really look exactly like the origin- original two things that encountered each other. Thank you. And Blend- Blending, basically. Yeah. And so with uh, dragons appearing in all these disparate cultures, would you say that there are big differences across cultures in their descriptions 
of these creatures and, and what they're believed to be? Yeah, I would. Um, for example, in China, um, or East Asian dragons in general, they tend to be amalgam creatures. There was definitely a sense in early Chinese dragons of them being a combination of different creatures, you know, with the head of a camel, horns of a deer, neck of a snake, the scales of a fish, like a carp, with eagle claws and cow ears, things like this, classical sort of, they're amalgam creatures in a certain kind of way. And there's lots of theories as to why that is, but they tended to be also sort of serpentine spirits that were related to rain and, they were like the cuckoo bird, the heralds of spring. The emperor sat on the dragon throne. The emperor was a dragon. And the emperor was responsible for the harvests. And the way the harvest would grow was with rain. So the dragons, which when they speak, is thunder. Even in Tibetan, the word drukke means dragon speech, which is the name of thunder in Tibetan language. So Neat. you have um, the dragons bring the water bring the rain. The dragons are rivers. They undulate across the countryside in the shape of dragons. And they, so the emperor is responsible for the well-being of the people in terms of food. So the emperor, the dragon brings the rain. Um, so there's a very, there's an auspiciousness to dragons in China. They were not considered to be fire breathing, scary devil like creatures. They're much more related to the emperor and fortune and things like this. In Mesopotamia, there's a little bit of a darker quality to the concept of dragons. And eventually when it starts blending with, I mean, we don't, for example, know like the classical story of Babylonian Tiamat, whether this was originally an anthropomorphized figure or whether it was serpent-like, although there's descriptions of serpent-like qualities to Tiamat. Um, But all the way up into Germanic regions, we have notions of storm gods battling serpents and things like this. And you start to have this notion of the culture hero fighting and defeating a dragon. And when this gets associated with the devil and fire and things like this, and this also becomes an issue of control of women's bodies and virginity and knights and chivalry and things like this later on in the high middle ages. So they're sort of distinct on those senses, but they bumped into each other and they blend in between. And so you start to see East Asian dragon concepts influencing Near Eastern Mesopotamian and later even European dragonology and stuff like this. Plus, there's the third factor, which is the South Asian concept. And so there's this South Asian being called a Naga. A Naga is a subterranean water-based spirit that spirit that often protects treasures. It is responsible for um, earthquakes, if not propitiated. It comes out during rain like snakes do, because snakes appear when it rains because their holes fill with water. So they're associated again with rain and water. Other things can be nagas too, scorpions and frogs and things like this, but basically snakes. And so this concept of snakes, they're also, they, they cause leprosy. They can sort of, in a sense, cast leprosy upon, upon people who do not respect them. They become protectors of teachings and treasures in the Buddhist tradition. Eventually, this Naga concept travels with Buddhism, historically, 
starting about 2,000 years ago, a little less, um, up along through what is today Afghanistan, Pakistan, around Tibet, basically up to the oases of the Silk Road, through what is today Xinjiang um, in western China, to sort of central China, and eventually to Korea and Japan, where it mixes again syncretically with local spiritual culture that involves different stories and different mythology. So the weird thing here is that you have this Indic concept that travels with Buddhism and merges with this East Asian Chinese dragon. And the result is that you sort of have the Buddhization of dragons and they become something different again. So basically you're looking at weird patterns throughout history where dragons change in local understanding and local meaning and in artistic depictions and in literature and things like this. We see this uh, sort of transformation of meaning of monster names uh, even now. We, we, uh, I think we talked about this uh, at the conference a little bit. Yeah. How, things like uh, the chupacabra was originally a, sort of a humanoid creature and now it's in just within basically within two decades, it's been turned into a canid, uh, which is just a bizarre transformation. And it's it seems to be organic. It's just the the, the way that language changes uh, sort of reflects the way the monster has changed. But there's no there's not like a single person behind this or a single entity pushing that narrative. It just sort of changed culturally. Right, uh, absolutely. Yeah, so it's very interesting. Now, I do note that in, uh, at least uh, in European culture, it seems like there's a lot of very literal representations of dragons, but it sounds like in Asia, there's almost a more poetic or spiritual quality to them. Is is it common to see uh, dragons represented as literal uh, animals in Asian culture? I, I don't see many, like, Asian dragon movies, I, you know, I, I don't. Or read, I don't read any foreign languages. Which is just so. a shame, I've got to say, Blake. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Bad because no, yes. yeah, no. I just, you know, I, I it's a, it's, it's a hole in my, uh, in my oeuvre. And there are <laughs> better movies, but no yeah. doubt, yes, dragons do have a certain sense of a reality in, in the tradition, in art, for example. We see depictions from, you know, about five hundred. About 5,500 years ago to 6,000 years ago, there were early images of dragons in China from made of jade or shell and things like this. And eventually, they I mean, they take on different characteristics and there's different forms of what a dragon might be. But throughout the next thousands and thousands of years, we have many, many depictions of dragons. They show up in literature. They show up first in sort of yellow emperor mythology as being, you know, amalgam beings and things like this but um whether or not there's a sense that there really were dragons that's not that's not a concern that whether or not dragons are creatures of the imagination until significantly later so yeah dragons were considered to be real rare wild things the emperor was it's also if i can if i can put it this way this might help a little bit the issue wasn't whether or not dragons are an imaginary thing or a real thing it's that what dragons were is something different than we might think of them today. The emperor was a dragon. The th speech of the thunder is the speech of dragons. It's not a metaphor. So when you say drukke for dragon speech, it's not saying it's like a dragon. It's saying it is a dragon. That's, ah, yeah. that's what a dragon is. So it's equative. 
So the idea is not that it's metaphoric, but that it is literal in sense of its symbolic representation sort of semiotically, right? So that's what a dragon is. It's not that it's the thing that we think of now and, oh, isn't that like it? So have you been in a thunderstorm in the Himalayas? Oh, yeah. What's that sound like? <laughs> oh, oh, man, I've been flattened by them. Like, you know, lying down on the gravel flat on the mountainside, hoping that you survive the thing. You know, wow. snow, snow blowing sideways, lightning, thunder, you know, the sort of simultaneity. And also, it is pretty crazy to experience lightning and thunder in snow. It's wild. It's, it's a different thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's quite something. There are dragons out there. The dragon appears on the flag of Bhutan. The country is called Drukyul, um, dragon country. That's the name of the country of Bhutan. But, you know, the dragon shows up on the flag in Wales as well. So it's it's turned into this widespread thing. C- celestial flying pearl chasing dragons become important later on in China as well. So there starts to be different types of dragons and the bestiaries of you know, throughout Chinese history from the Song Dynasty and stuff like this, have different kinds of dragons. So if you go to a Taoist mountain on pilgrimage, you'll eventually come around a corner and there'll be like a spring and someone has carved on a rock that there used to be a dragon that lived here. So whether or not they were understood to be these autonomous creatures that lived out in the wilds seems to be the case. But then they eventually start to become creatures of the imagination in more modern times as well. Why that is? It's a mystery to me. There's also arguments, of course, that because of dinosaur bones in China, people had thought there once were great big serpent creatures. Um, you know, there's there's those, these theories as well. Yeah, that's there's the Adrian Mayer theory too. I think exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Eric, you uh, had you were talking about some um, fire breathing dragons earlier. You mentioned them a couple of times, and uh, I'm just wondering about that fire breathing aspect of dragons. Is that some um, Christian representation somehow and is um, the fire breathing maybe related to the idea of hell? I think so. I don't know. I actually don't know nearly as much about European dragons. Um, That's my understanding is that when things started to become related to um, the concepts of evil and that binary and the devil. Yes. Dragons show up in the revelation of John. Um, Dragons are associated with sort of the co- the concept of terror and evil and, and fear. So it's relationship. But I don't know exactly where the fire part enters into it. That is a good question. I don't know the answer to it. Not sure. Yeah. No um, you mentioned in Texas that the Silk Road was a key part of the spread of the dragon story. Could you talk a little bit about that and the impact of the Silk Road on the sort of cultural transfer? Sure, happily. Um, The Silk Roads, really, um, were a network of trade routes that stretched really all the way from about Korea to 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 Venice, um, or and they branched. So there was not one road, and it wasn't made of silk, like one of my students once thought. Which I thought, wow, cool. (laughs) Um, Yeah, they. um, It's stronger and lighter and more colorful than a lot of the other roads. I know some people were envisioning a road made of silk, but they were a series of trade routes, and very, very few people ever went very far on the Silk Road. Usually, you would just go between stop A and stop B, sell your goods, and come back. And people didn't usually use them as like highways. Very rarely did someone like Marco Polo travel all the way from Southern Europe 
to the court of the great Khans. Oh, you've blown my uh, mind already. So it was more of a trickle trade type thing? Very much so. And wow. all things were being traded. So it was not just books that were being translated from oasis to oasis, from language to language to language. So you see Buddhism being translated often three or four times before it reaches Chinese language and changes every time, by the way. You know, so not only do you see things like this happening, but you also see um, technologies moving, philosophical concepts moving. And during certain periods of uh, sort of Think about like the concept of Pax Mongolica, which would be literally like Pax Romana. Once the Mongol Empire conquered the largest land empire in the history of the world, there was basically this wonderful time of freedom of trade, right? And you also had, you know, freedom of religion by diktat of the emperor under the Khans. So you had this rich, wonderful, exciting world from Arabia to Persia all the way up into sort of across Central Asia into East Asia, and people spreading ideas and technologies and objects and books and things like this. Um, of course, there were then sub-trade routes down to South Asia and eventually maritime routes with spice trading and um, massive amounts of the spreading of Islam and things like this. So you see um, a huge network that had been going on for literally thousands of years with sort of more acute periods more recently, maybe in the last 2,000 years. And a lot of ideas spread, including concepts like monotheism, concepts like dragons. So this was probably one of the main conduits for story. And we start to see a lot of, a lot of Indo-European ideas entering into East Asian consciousness and, and, and vice versa. But, no, but the other key thing to point out here is it's not that there was sort of this binary world of the Middle Eastern European world and East Asia. There are also whole kingdoms and civilizations with very complex worldviews in between that often for centuries on end, you know, were rich centers of, the, of, of development um, of ideas and books and religion as well. For, think, for example, Persia, right in between, right? You mentioned that your professor had uh, written a book about dragons. Uh, did, did you, did, did that book cover things like worms and wyverns? These other sort of variants? Uh, yeah, to a degree. It also, um, does a little bit of a discussion of sort of history of artistic depictions of dragons. And it sets out some of the theories that people have had, other scholars have had about the origin of dragons, whether it's a single origin or a multiplicity of origins. And it's a nice comparative study, um, yeah, sweet Zhao Qiguang, who was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man and a great teacher. He passed away several years ago, but was a true inspiration for me. Sounds awesome. I mean, it sounds like a really, really great uh, influence. Are you, are you aware of the of the great controversy that broke out over the, the movie The Hobbit or the three-part film The Hobbit? I've certainly seen the film. Yeah, so so the, the, uh, it created a, a fan schism because uh, in the book – uh, smog is a dragon, but as depicted on screen, smog is a wyvern because he only has uh, wings and two legs. They've they've sort of incorporated the arms into the wings, which is uh, to be fair. I think they were going for a more natural, you know, evolutionarily plausible sort of dragon that also could talk and breathe fire. So it's clearly important that it be evolutionarily plausible. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna start like. 
<laughs> going after like evolutionary plausibility in Tolkien. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we can, if you really want to go that road, we can do I that. just, I don't, it, it really upset a lot of fans and the, the pettit nerd D and D player in me was really annoyed that they wouldn't put four limbs and two wings and make it a real dragon. It just seemed, uh, it, so I guess that's where I fall on this sort of spectrum of, of I uh, thought Smog was pretty awesome in the movies. If my only issue with the movies was the sort of Aryan Nazi elf thing going on <laughs> and, <laughs> and this notion of like, yeah, I thought they did Smog pretty well. That was pretty cool. The voice was good and the, the treasure room was pretty crazy cool. So you could literally read the Hobbit while you watched all three of those films, the, the Hobbit's not a very long book, you know. So I, I even noticed that he didn't have front legs in the. In yeah, the- it's I don't know. I'm sorry. I, I, <laughs> see, it shouldn't matter. I should just let it go. There's other issues with that film or that three films. <laughs> <I don't laughs> yeah, so, Peter Jackson. Like, I mean, if you think about the percentage of the book that involves battling and the percentage of the movies that involve battling, let's go there first, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know. At least this one had an adequate amount of singing in it. I think that's more in keeping with the text. There we go. I, I'm sorry. Where am I? So I, I need to get off of this topic. But I, the the idea, the worms, I guess, being like lesser versions of, of dragons, uh, it's very interesting to me. And that's I see that a lot in European folklore. That And I, that, that comes up more in cryptid studies because worms are like there'll be a worm of a, like a town or a worm of a well or a worm of a river that sort of. Uh, might have been some real animal, and at least for those of us with that sort of humoristic bent in our cryptid studies. Um, but I just I was curious because I, I I find it really interesting. I don't I don't know how far back that sort of etymological difference. I, I assume it goes back to heraldry, um, uh, but I don't know for sure where that actually falls out. Where you have it's separating. A, yeah. It's a linguistic thing, as far as I understand it. It's um, that it has to do with Welsh. But oh well, that, that I may be, be I may be wrong. I'm not the linguist, but yeah, um, you have different. Check out the Oxford English Dictionary. They've got yeah, you have different etymology. W y r m, right? I think the the concept of of you know Dracos dragon coming from you know you know the classical world versus yeah. very local names in the British Isles. You're going to just get several words to start talking about things that become related as concepts and therefore um, they're going to be differentiated like a taxonomy of the difference between a hydra versus a dragon. You know, a lot of this also comes from, and this needs, I think needs to be said, it comes from Dungeons and Dragons. Yes, it does need to be said. Yeah, And I absolutely. think it's really important that we understand that the modern view that we have is a, a blend of Tolkien and D and D, right? And the artistic world that surrounded role-playing games and things like this, the depictions of dragons consistently, that we have, at least in, in Americana today, whatever that might mean, or it's sort of, we, we have a very strong sense that it's important to distinguish between a worm and a wyvern or a wyvern and a dragon, and that these are distinct things. But there, it's a, a linguistic distinction, really, that... Th- and the way we want them to be fits characteristics that I don't think were ever fixed historically. That they weren't – that whether or not it had two legs or four legs was not what was important about their stories. It was their treasure chart and their hit points. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was about what they 
did and what they represented. Exactly. Yeah. Whether they were the local landscape or they created the local landscape or they were in explandum for why that cave is a dangerous place to go or those cliffs or why it was that, you know, where, where the treasures must be and that sense of wonder and things like this. I don't think it had anything to do with whether or not they had two legs or four legs or a stinger at the end of their tail. Right. Right. These are things that we've added on and made more important than the stories made them. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Yeah, yeah that, that's true. And I... I, I don't think at least here in America or I, that it's you could easily overstate the importance of Dungeons and Dragons in a oh, second. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's huge. Yeah. Absolutely enormous. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, huge influence. From an etymological perspective to um, looking at the origins of a word or what it originally meant doesn't necessarily have much impact on what it might mean today. There are just lots of semantic right. processes and things that can happen. Meanings can broaden, they can narrow. It's basically evolution. It Um, makes me feel really gay to hear you say that. (laughs) (laughs) We did mention that before the show. I don't know if it's appropriate. No, 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 I just (laughs) say one of the one of the cool things when we think back about what dragons might have used to have meant. Right. One of the things that seems to be the pattern that connects them has to do with the serpent. And I think that's key. Um, there's an anthropologist named David Jones who basically attributes the concept, the un- sort of universality of the concept of dragons, which, by the way, I don't think is universal. It may be ubiquitous and widespread, but it's not a universal category. There are a few universal categories in sort of human religiosity, if, however you define re- religion, but ritual, 
perhaps sacrifice, perhaps dream interpretation. These seem to be pretty universal. Dragons are not universal. They are widespread. But David Jones thinks that a lot of it comes from this sort of evolutionary anthropos notion of a hardwired fear of snakes, Mm. which has some scientific credence to it, right? I mean, homo sapiens are frightened of snakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that probably comes from very old, old evolutionary um, development of of certain instinctual aspects that are perhaps encoded at this point. Mm-hmm. So it could be that there are some really deep relationships between that which is considered the monstrous um, other thing about which we are afraid and the relationship between the construct of dragon. The only really strong counter to that that I can think of is that the dragon in ancient China was not considered wicked. And I think that's the key to sort of discounting, putting too much, too much uh, emphasis on David Jones's theory. Because, yeah. yeah, they're not really a wicked creatures. There are certainly dangerous dragons in Chinese stories, for sure. They definitely can eat people. But in general, they mean fortune. They mean good luck. They are wonderful creatures. I mean, the dragon dance, where you see the dra- the long undulating dragon dance at, at New Year or Spring mm-hmm. Festival, things like this. This is symbolic of probably historically um, bringing good weather and good harvests. It was not about here comes the monster. That's not what it was. Right. It was not this 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 terrifying figure all the time. Well, and also the the chimerical qualities of it that it's got all these other animals built into it also sort of implies it's somewhat distinct from that sort of serpent core yeah 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 but it does undulate i mean it is it is wormy, no no it, yeah right? it's got a wormy <laughs> body right <laughs> there's something about that about dragons for sure the other big question becomes flight right why do some dragons fly and others do not um and there's different all kinds of possible theories about that some of the early dragon depictions in uh, mesopotamian areas they were winged creatures that were part eagle or you know sort of in a sense, griffin-esque, um, although griffins really come from the Altai Mountains in Mongolia. But anyway, the um, and in, and in China, the celestial dragons don't have wings most of the time. They fly, but they are storms, so they're in the sky. But they don't fly with wings. They fly with magic, basically. Oh, you just remind me again. I we really do need to pester. Adrian Mayer to get on the show. She's got a new book on robots in ancient uh, literature and lore and myth Excellent. as well. So I just she she she's I think I don't know if that was original to her, but talking about the uh, Griffins uh, and uh, tying that into uh, uh, ceratopsid bones, uh, fossils, that sort of thing is just nice. Really, yeah, it's really interesting stuff. So right, yeah. I, I know there's been some pushback from some paleontologists, but it it certainly to me, as a layman, it sounds very plausible. <laughs> and and the hero veneration of, of fossil bones seems uh, absolutely plausible and explanatory for a lot of these sort of giants and Greek myths, for example. So it's really interesting stuff. So she owes us an interview. I'm shaking my fist at her. I, 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 <laughs> sounds good. Yeah. Well, speaking about that, Eric, um, we've heard that uh, some supposed dragon bones – uh, which are found in Chinese markets are actually fossils. Have you ever run into that at all? Personally, no, but I've heard about it. Um, yeah, there's a sense that, you know, that some of, I mean, 
there's a direct relationship between even the linguistic designation for dinosaur in Chinese and the concept of dragon. There's a pretty strong link, plausibly, that the idea was people were finding these giant bones and saying, hey, this must have been a dragon. So, um, long in Chinese. So, there's a there's a pretty serious link there. I mean, they actually have been they fossilized dinosaur bones have in pieces been found in sort of black market medicine in China, sort of powdered bone, like powdered deer antler type thing, right? Um, to bring vitality um, and power. So yeah, I'm, to me, those relationships are pretty clear. That you know, the idea of fossilized dinosaur bones being a link to the imagination of dragons. Sure. Can I say something about imagination here though? Sure. If it's, sure. If that um, there's a, there's a sentence at the beginning of Zhao Qi Guang's book that as much as I seriously dearly love Zhao Qi Guang, the first sentence of his book, and I, I know it because I've taught this book and I, fixated on the sentence. The first sentence he writes is, dragons do not actually exist. None ever did exist. And my love for Qiguang aside, um, I don't agree. And it's not that I think that dragons as we might imagine them were physical creatures around or are physical creatures around. For that, I am agnostic. I don't know. Maybe there are, maybe there aren't. But for me, what matters is that the idea that the um, what is imaginary isn't real is problematic. I think in a lot of worldviews all over all over the planet, the concept of what is real and what is legendary and what is mythological, what is imagined, what is fantasy, what is fantastic, are weird concepts that we might as English-speaking, colonial, Euro-American anthropology types implant upon other peoples in terms of framing categories of understanding upon them. Religion itself is a product of the colonial imaginary to a large degree as a concept. What it is that many, 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 many peoples of the world do in terms of creating their realities and dreaming their worlds and storytelling into existence um, their fears, um, those are real. Again, they're not metaphors. So um, dragon speech is dragons. So to say that dragons are imaginary is to discount that that's what a dragon is in that language. Right. And so I take issue with that concept that dragons have never existed or that local truth claims are not as possibly true in that constructed worldview modality than any truth claim we make in ours. So they exist as a concept. Well, we talked about this at the conference a little bit too, in, in my, my talk about the fact that you there in, in Karen and I both come from this background of uh, scientific skepticism. And a lot of that is tied into testing material reality, you know, it, it, but Aside from the question of whether things are physically real, things can definitely be culturally real. And it, it kind of doesn't matter in, in some respects for the person who's the experiencer. Uh, if, if you, that's why I talked about experiencing monsters versus literally seeing them. People who have had you know, deep and powerful 
encounters with Bigfoot, uh, if I don't believe Bigfoot's a real animal, it kind of doesn't matter because that person's had a life-changing experience with whatever they they saw or, or, or again, experienced. Yeah, and, or, or God, for that matter. Or whatever, yeah, yeah. Any of these sort of uh, numinous, quasi-paranormal or just, you know, even sometimes even just atypical experiences, um, they can be transforming to the people who experience in them. And I don't want to be dismissive of that at all. You know, I don't think we're going to find a dragon corpse, but I do think we see a, a, an entire world littered with dragons. So it's it's interesting. I'm with you. I, I I think it's a modal shift. I think it's sort of a categorical error to assess one mode of causal system from a different one. So, for example, um, when we think about the difference between sort of empirical science and causal systems like you know, sort of again there's a lot of academic debate about the, the the value of this term but magical causal systems right something um like like begets light sympathy and causality right sure so, um when we get into this issue what we have is you know and, and religion can enter this conversation as well we have the notion of if you're trying to assess a magical causal system using empirical science, you're making a categorical error. You're not going to be able to see it inside of that causal system. So, you know, as Stephen Jay Gould put it, scientists should not be talking about the rock of ages and theologians should not be talking about the age of rocks. Yeah, well, Noma, Noma, non-overlapping magisteria. That's it. Right, yeah. exactly. So what he's calling magisteria, I'm using the term modalities in a similar sort of sense, that there's different modes of conceptualizing reality. And there really are many, many, many of them on this planet with many different peoples and, and other beings in the world, you know, other creatures in this world. I mean, like thinking humpbacks, you know, who are going to have their worldviews and to try to assess them from the standpoint of a normative one like empirical science is going to be a categorical error. So whether or not we're trying to find out the quote unquote reality of dragons is is sort of silly in a certain kind of way. That's not what it means in a local context elsewhere. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. No, I think, and I think it's well stated. I, and I think it's a, uh, it's something we've talked about before because, uh, well, lots of times, because when dealing with the paranormal right there, look at the word it's paranormal. It's outside of the normal. So normal, which is created by power structures, right? right. <laughs> so, <laughs> we, if, if these things are not testable, uh, within the framework of science, science can't say too much about them except that they're untestable. And right. you, yeah, so, and, and, uh, you know, I, I, it's obviously this is a tangent we could talk about well, for a it, long it, it time. Does, it does seem to say that it, it's privileging certain things as being the important questions. Like, nane gu tales, mi gu tales, this thing that um, is more or less like um, the Himalayan equivalent of Bigfoot, right? This sort of forest person, this this wild person. Um, and there's stories that abound across China and across Tibet. Um about these nanegu or namigu, migu, sometimes called yeti in the snowbound regions of Nepal by the Sherpa people, right? And so th these stories, when we when we think about whether they're real or not, whether there really are yeti or there really are migu, to me that's a very very strange question. Um, 
It reminds me of when some BBC reporter once asked Boy George whether or not he was gay. And Boy George said, I find that to be a really uninteresting question. Right? Similarly, I think that like, it's sort of like someone from a certain power dynamic asking a question about something, it's reality according to what they think is important, rather than listening to what the stories themselves are telling you is important about the, about the migu. So rather than wondering whether or not they're real, let's, let's look dif- deeply at what the story is saying, not just its social function, but other kind of content stuff about ontology and epistemology and about like our sense of identity and cultural landscape and things like this. What are the stories containing? And those are not questions about whether or not the creature exists. That's an etic outsider's kind of etic um, worldview being imposed upon the stories by us with a totally different hermeneutic, a different lens, a different cultural way of sort of categorizing what we think is important about them. So I don't think it's important to ask whether or not the migu are real. That's not what the stories are saying is important. Similarly, I think the idea about dragons and their reality might not be the right question to ask about about dragons. I, I don't think there are a lot of people asking whether or not dragons are real anymore. But if they are, I don't think it's particularly the right question to ask. I think this is why I, I've, I'm starting to think that the uh, the basic unit of transfer of information transfer in monsters is not dna it's story that's really absolutely yes i am with you so eric there was a lot of excitement that was generated on facebook and twitter when uh, our listeners found out that we were going to be speaking with you about dragons so um further to questions of whether dragons are real or, or, or not why are we fascinated by dragons do you think Ah, there you go. Good question. I I don't know, Karen. Um, why are we fascinated with dragons? <laughs> I've got a friend who was telling me a story. This is a guy with whom I do a lot of my research. And he was telling me about his childhood and his sort of mean sister. And when he was a kid, he was a, he grew up as a nomad in Tibet. And his sister used to basically torture him by saying to him, um, see the rainbow over there go catch it and break off a piece of it and so he spent his childhood chasing rainbows and never getting to them and all he wanted to do was break off a piece and put it in his pocket and he cried and he cried because he could never catch the rainbows but he wasn't just doing it because his sister told him to he really wanted to catch a rainbow and i think it's a little bit like that i think there's a sense of wonder that motivates us um it it brings us alive um, it's the stories that breathe life into us. It's the stories that make us, um, that transport us as we fall asleep. The, this, the sacred is part of the notion of the telling of these stories, when and how we tell them, and to whom and why. In what context, on what occasions do we perform the stories that matter to us? And whether or not these stories are true it's the wonder of them and so the concept of imagination is baked in it's in there so the notion of the fantastic which as Rushdie puts it must be somehow grounded in reality or it becomes unintelligible the, the, these things are are absolutely intriguing to us they they're things that we want to understand and we want to 
step away from that which is our experience. We want to broaden our possibilities. We have a capacity for imagination. So why wouldn't we go as far with it as we could? Whether that means things are real or not isn't really the point. Nicely said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although I do really want to give your friend some Skittles. Uh, <laughs> Taste the rainbow. <laughs> Taste the rainbow. I know. You can't catch it. It's such a heartbreaking story. I don't know. It is. It is. It I mean, is. I, can, I can visualize it. I can just watch him running, crying up this hill, just trying. All he wants is a little piece, right? You know, he doesn't want the whole thing. It's not very greedy. It's just that he wants to break off a piece. Well, I, I you know, where I am in my materialistic, rational world, I've never lost track of the fact that I have a deep and abiding love for these things, these monsters, these stories, the way they affect us. And I just, I, I'm so fascinated, but I've also stepped back from that sort of direct experience. And I'm really interested in the way these stories spread. And you were talking at the conference about uh, Yeti lore and the way these, well, not Yeti, you say Migu? Migu, Migu, yeah. So, so over the years, I've been saying Migo because that's how it's the sort of. That's, uh, that's fine. Yeah. So just so that listeners know we're talking about the same thing. These are also monsters mentioned in H.P. Lovecraft uh, completely differently, but the same same <laughs> root. root. Um, uh, but, but so you talked about uh, the way this lore is traveling around. Have you. Uh, you, you've been tracking these stories uh, through different villages. Have you developed any theories about the patterns about this? Or like, how do you sort of, are you looking at this from a date perspective or? or no, certainly not yeah. a dating perspective. Yeah. Um, I suppose if the data set gets large enough, one could start speculating about dates. But really what we find are some elements that exist in some regions and elements of the stories that don't and, and shift in different regions. So in a way, it's a little bit like a study of morphology of stories. Yeah. You know, to use a sort of concept that would make sense to linguists like Karen, right? But the um, ultimately what I think is most interesting is that the, the stories seem to always be very tied to the local landscape. And so – you can be hanging out with a storyteller who tells you about a Migu tale or about a very specific subcategory of Migu tale. Like there's a story about a creature called the Shashong Du Du, which is like a wild person, sort of like a Bigfootish type creature, but it has really long arms and wings and it can fly and it's super dangerous and it would take whole people and horses and things like this. And, um, Eventually, it's outsmarted by a 10-year-old boy who puts gunpowder into a, a a cow horn, and the creature flies down the Shershang Du Du, and it picks up the horn and flies back to its craggy nest in the mountains, and it explodes. And you can see, if you look up over your left shoulder, the jagged mountain peak there, and it explains why that it's a jagged mountain peak, because it blew up years ago when the boy killed the Shershang Du Du. And then you can go four valleys away and someone will tell you the same story and they'll point to their mountain and say, that mountain blew up when the Shershang Du Du exploded. So it's owned locally differently by many different people. And this becomes quite interesting because they say there was only one Shershang Du Du and that's where it died. And someone will say the same thing further away. 
And this is true for Miga tales as well. They talk about the invisible villages where the Miga um, live, or and the people are refugees from these invisible villages in which you cannot live because the Miga invert all the things you try to do in your farming traditions and things like this. So you have to flee, basically, and down into the more settled communities down by the river. And people will say, come walk with me, and I'll show you the ruins of the vis- that village where people used to live. But it became visible through the transgressions of the Migu. So you walk up there and you see the ruins of the village and it has a, a name. And then elsewhere you'll hear variants of the same story that are all tied to that local landscape. So regardless of where that story is happening, it becomes a way that local landscape can be described in ways that are intelligibly similar across different Tibetan valleys. So if Tibetans meet each other, from village A and village C, both of them far afield, they can tell that story and they both understand it because it talks about both of their homes. So in a certain kind of way, it is like a glue in a larger concept of anyone who knows this story and it's shared in their cultural compendium of folk knowledge, therefore share identity markers. It's part of who we are as Tibetans when they'll share that story. Right. So it's it's the us and identity versus that which is not us, that which is beyond us, the monstrous other, the creature that lives just outside of our villages in the invisible village above the tree line where you don't go. So not only does it sort of distinguish us versus the other and the them, but it also links us when we don't live in the same place. It does both of those simultaneously. Very interesting. How are you visualizing this information? Are you are you doing like like maps where you're seeing story overlap, or like how or how are you dealing with this academically? This data. Yes, I'm doing that. I'm looking at several different aspects of it, the content, but I'm also very much looking at how and when these stories are told, and in what contexts. And storytelling becomes this very messy, complex thing with lots of people involved. And to me, that's what's really interesting is the performance of the story itself. You know, who are the storytellers and how are they getting their information? And if it's told in a group setting, who's contributing to the storytelling? It's not just one voice. This kind of murky, messy stuff is what I'm looking at, too. Um, And its relationship to the local landscape. So, yeah, I'm sort of looking at the whole big picture. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to draw too many huge conclusions about it. There are patterns. But I'm also looking at a very specific region, and these stories are told far, far from where I'm looking. I cannot do a comprehensive study of it. It's too huge a tradition. It's too widespread for me to like collect data from the entirety of the world that tells these t- tales. So what I'm doing is focusing on one specific area of maybe about, oh, 100 miles by 100 miles. Um, that region. And looking at the stories in depth in that one specific area. Still a big area. Yeah, I suppose, but I've been at it for about ten years, so you get you go back and you go back and you go back, and you know, not everyone knows these stories. They seem to be disappearing to a degree, you know, with mo- mm-hmm. you know, sort of the postmodern world that happens. Two more things I want to kind of hit before we kind of wind up here, and and uh, one of them is another one of these overlap things, but yeah. uh, that 
these events about fairies. But uh, right now, you've you've just mentioned disappearing villages, and while you were talking, and I believe I heard a couple other people mention this 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 idea of villages that uh, appear and disappear that comes up in sort of Western fiction about Asia a lot, like Shangri La and Shambhala. These these ideas of these these villages that are somewhat mystical, you know. Yeah. But it sounds like it's actually a pretty common part of the lore up in that region. Uh, can you talk briefly about how those function, those I stories? Can I can yeah. try. There's several pieces to it. Um, I mean, the romanticization of, you know, Tibet and Shangri-La aside. I mean, literally the place where I do my field work is called Shangri-La. That's the name of the town. So, yeah. it's Wow. It's, it's it's the heart center of a lot of this sort of nonsensical um, romanticization view of the exotic East, right? But um, basically, there are several local, regional sort of streams of story that enter into this tradition of that which is hidden being revealed. One of them is a concept called Bayu, basically this sort of hidden land that is in the Buddhist context, it's literally opened by a Buddhist master who will, in a sense, consecrate the space by um, making it into a, either a pilgrimage spot or opening a, a secret valley as a refuge, in a sense. So there's you know, plenty of history of people migrating across the region, either escaping war or something like that, and coming down to the Himals and finding a hidden valley, and that valley being revealed. It was like secret or hidden or invisible, and it becomes livable and domesticated in a certain kind of way. And, um, you know, there are other sort of very important sort of storylines that can enter this conversation. For example, when Guru Rinpoche, Padmasambhava, was bringing tantric Buddhism to Tibet, Tibet was not prepared for the wisdom of the tantric teachings. And so Tibet, which was envisioned as a supine female demoness, the land itself, she was basically tamed by the building of temples on important spots of the body of her land. She was the land, sort of pinning her down to the land itself to tame it, to make the land accessible to the, the Buddha Dharma. So these tales are also part of the whole thing. She's depicted as sort of ogress like demonish, you know, demonic. So these are there also way pre-Buddhist. And I don't know if this Bayou thing really has a, I think it seems pre-Buddhist to me. It's been Buddhicized. It's been given a lot of Buddhist empowerment, but um, there are very minor, minor, small versions of the same kind of concept in these villages, these invisible villages where people lived in a more idyllic state and then lost their invisibility through transgression. So, fairy-like beings living in this village would watch the people who lived below them and copy them because they were curious and they wanted to be like these people. And so they saw the people burning a body, cremating a body um, that had died, a human body. And so the fairies cremated a donkey that died because they thought that's what they were supposed to do if they wanted to be like these humans they were watching. But of course, cremating a donkey was sort of, in a sense, not what you were supposed to do. It was transgressive, and it broke the spell, and the um, their village became visible. 
at which point they were sort of forced to mingle with the people. And the people who live in the village below now point up at the ruins above and say, that's where our ancestors used to live. And now I have fairy blood because our people mixed several generations ago. So this notion of the transgression making visible that which was unseeable and that the place itself in the Nanigu case, the Migu case, the invisible villages are unlivable because the monsters that look down upon this village come down at night and turn over all your seedling plantings and your harvest racks and flip over everything you did. They invert. So it's the almost human that wants to be human um, becoming visible through transgression and making your life in their world uninhabitable because they copy and flip upside down that which is you. So there's all kinds of things wrapped up, of course, in this, in the notions of identity and the ocean of proper be, proper ways of being. Um, and they're also funny stories. So they're fun to tell and they're fun to hear. And they help us to sort of understand our landscape and they help us to understand, um, oh, I don't know, all sorts of things. <laughs> This just begs so many more questions, and we could continue talking about these topics for for hours. I want to have you back uh, in the future to talk about fairies. I'm not sure when we can do that, but I, I feel like that would probably be its own episode because uh, I, I, there's so much about fairies we still have yet to, to talk about. Let's take a minute, though, and uh, let let you talk about your school where you teach, Guilford College. Yeah, Guilford is a fantastic place. It's basically this gem. It's a uh, small. Quaker Liberal Arts College in Greensboro, North Carolina. And it is a place that is really, it's special, it's different in ways that I have come in the 15 years I've been teaching there to just truly appreciate and enjoy. It's a place where we know our students and we care a lot about our students' education. And it, I mean, that's true of teachers everywhere, but at Guilford, there's something about um, the small classroom dynamic and the attention to community where we know our students well enough that we can take them from strength to their next strength. Um, we're able to um, design innovative interdisciplinary courses that are about engaged learning and social change and um, ethics of bringing what we're learning in the classroom into our communities in ways that are not arrogant um, I think I was telling you, Blake, earlier that one of the things I like about Guilford is that we measure success of our students in ways that are based on criteria different than other places do it. We're not interested in measuring success on whether or not our students become powerful, influential, or rich, right? We we care that our students are people who are um, ethically engaged change makers, that they are intellectually curious and rigorous and full of wonder that they are kind and are loved by their friends and love their friends. And in a sense, we're interested in, in what I think are sort of the more important aspects of what it means to be a good person. And, you know, and we do this without preaching at people, but really sort of helping to foster people figuring out who they are and mm -hmm. celebrating that through good, rigorous, hard learning and, community-based, community-engaged, um, interdisciplinary education. I, I feel like I just got an academic hug. That was... <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome to come to Guilford College anytime. 
Come with me. Right, I yeah. think these things would resonate uh, a lot with our listeners. It's, it's been very no, important. For real. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. It's I, a great place. And your listeners are welcome to reach out to me. Um, you can find me through the through Guilford College in the Department of Religious Studies. I also run the International Studies Program and lead a lot of study abroad programs to places like Tibet and to Kyoto and to Anik Castle, where they filmed the Harry Potter Hogwarts series. I'm bringing a bunch of students there in August to, for a course on the mechanisms of magic and medicine. And there's lots of worms in the countryside there. That's right. So, yeah. Sounds like another Fantastic. show. Yeah. <laughs> so we've just got one final question, Eric, that we like to ask all of our guests, and that is, what's your favorite monster? That's a really unfair question to ask somebody. Um, oh, my goodness. Um, Some choices. We, we know it's a difficult question. I think my favorite monster is your classical European fae fairy. Ooh, okay. And why? Because they seem so wonderful and so enchanting and so exciting and beautiful but they're really dangerous mm -hmm. and you get too close in all kinds of things that are not just trickster but kind of like odious um can happen you can dance with them all night long and come home and find a hundred years have gone by and everyone you loved has grown old and died in in that uh, sense they're just like world of warcraft <laughs> <laughs> so fairies are Fairies are not to be disrespected. They're, it's the beautiful magic of the, of the natural world, but there's something that you don't want to get too close. Yeah, we, we, call, we call them the, the good folk, right? So, yeah. <laughs> you think you want to, the fair folk, you think yeah, you yeah. want to find them, but do you really? It's like, that, maybe like dragons, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, Eric, I, I just am so happy you were able to make time for us. And uh, I, this Thank was wonderful. Thank you very much. You're very knowledgeable. Well, I'm incredibly honored to have been invited. Thank you so much. We'll definitely have you back. Absolutely, yeah. So, all right, so we'll, we'll, we like to break it up a little bit, so you you can take a break. But we will. <laughs> I will. I will come up pestering. <laughs> come find me if you want to anytime. I really, really appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much. Monster talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Eric Mortensen about dragons. Eric is an associate professor of religious studies and international studies program coordinator at Guilford College in Greensboro, North Carolina. Links to books and information discussed in this episode will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed here are those of myself and my guests and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. 
And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks so much for listening. Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Creature above all others has haunted our imagination. On land and in the air, the dragon has left its mark in the folklore of our ancestors.